0: Welcome to the Weekly Deep Dive Podcast on the Add-On Education Network, the podcast where we take a look at the weekly come-follow-me discussions and try to add a little insight and unique perspective. I am your host, Jason Lloyd, here in the studio with our friend and this show's producer, Nate Piper. What's up? <laughs> How you doing, Nate?
1: A little under the weather again. I thought I'd gotten rid of this cold, but it's still kicking around. Just so hanging in there. I won't, it's be, just... I won't be saying much again tonight, so sorry. You're kind of on your own.
0: Yeah, you say that. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> All right. Um, it's been it's been fun. We've been talking about Christ, his triumphal entry last week. I I loved the discussion. I loved the significance of those palm branches and the meaning of him coming in there. It's just profound. This week we're switching gears a little bit. We're going to be talking about. I don't know. We've got some end times prophecies here. Matthew 24 and Joseph Smith has taken Matthew 24 and and translated it. We have Joseph Smith Matthew chapter 1 that that corresponds. And and it's it, it, we're going to dive into it, but we're not probably going to go into as much detail about the significance of all the different events and and what it means and when it happened and all. I, I think we're going to leave a lot of that out. We're going to we're going to talk more about standing in holy places. And then talk about a couple of parables, like the parable of the virgins, the ten lamps, and we've got the widow's might, and we've got the sheeps and the goats. So let's, let's dive in. First off, what, what really stood out to me and where I really want to highlight this week is stand in holy places. It, 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 we've heard that before, right? Stand in holy places. And it's interesting because that's not even quite exactly what Christ says here in Matthew 24. Let's uh, let's go and read this, and then let's get some context, and then let me let me see if I can't help us understand this Matthew 24 a little bit. All right, let's let's look at verse 14 here. First, uh, verse 15. When therefore shall you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth it, let him understand. And and so let me ask this question, where is the holy place? What is Christ referring to when he says stand in the holy place? And and it, what are we to get from this? And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think most times if if we were to ask this question, if we were to do a general poll or a consensus and say, what does it mean to be standing in holy places? I, th- I think oftentimes you'll hear the, the temple thrown out there. I think you'll hear... Your home can be a temple. If you make your home a holy place, it's it's as if you were going to be in the temple. And and this idea of, of be in good places, avoid maybe bad places, be where the Spirit can be. I think that's the, the general consensus here. But and, and I've even heard people use this to say, you know what, when the second coming happens and and things hit the fan and things start getting really bad, I want to make sure I'm in the Salt Lake Temple and, and I'm going to avoid disaster and destruction. If I'm just standing in the temple, maybe the se- temple will be saved and therefore I will also be saved. When Christ says this, though, I want us to notice this. Why is Christ saying it? What is it in context of the, the beginning of the conversation, Matthew 24, at the very beginning, the disciples come to him and point out all of the buildings that are located in the temple lot. And we're talking about these structures that are built inside the temple, but not the temple proper. And Christ responds to them by saying, you see these buildings? Not one stone will be left standing on, on another. They're going to be destroyed. Absolutely. All of these buildings are going to be destroyed. The temple itself is going to be destroyed. And then they ask the question, when? When is the temple going to be destroyed? And Christ is answering that question by telling them things that are going to happen and things to look for so that they know when the temple, and not just the temple, by the way, but Jerusalem is going to be destroyed by Rome. And this happens in the year... 66 AD, the Jews have the first Jewish revolt against the Roman Empire, and it's actually a very successful revolt at the beginning. In the year 66, the, the Jewish rebels chased the Romans completely outside of the city, outside of the area. They've gained their own sense of independence and created their own governance. It's a successful revolt at the start. And in Rome, Nero's the emperor, he's going to die, you're going to have this change of, of the guard, and a new emperor takes the throne in 69 AD, and, and then in 70 AD, Rome lays siege to Jerusalem, and, and this, is, this is actually a, a pretty rough thing to do. They lay siege around the time of Passover. And remember, what's happening at Passover in Jerusalem you have all of these people, these pilgrims, coming from Capernaum, coming from the north, coming from anywhere where the Jews are outside of Jerusalem, all come back to Jerusalem to the temple to offer up their sacrifice for the Passover feast and the Passover celebration. Christ came to Jerusalem for Passover. His disciples come. This is, it's, it's kind of this, this pilgrimage is being made. And while Rome is laying siege to the city, they're not letting anybody out. But when all of these pilgrims come, they let them in. And why are they letting them in? Because all of these outsiders are going to help deplete the food and water sources from the city from within. And once they come in, they don't let them out. So Christ is telling you, hey, the temple's going to be destroyed, make sure you stand in the holy place. If anyone interpreted that to mean, oh, I need to make sure I'm at the temple when this happens, they would have been part of the destruction. The people that pilgrimed from far to come in to be part of this were destroyed. And if you're to think I'm going to make my home a holy space like the temple, most of the houses were destroyed too. So that's one thing I wanted to focus on today. When Christ says, stand in a holy place, what is he referring to? If it's not the temple and if it's not our homes, and I think we easily fall into the same trap as the Pharisees because the Pharisees were looking at it saying, the laws, the traditions, the rites, all of these things, herein lies salvation, If I do this, if I adhere to this, I'm going to be safe. Are we like the Pharisees, replacing the law of Moses, the tradition, the rites, now with our form of this is going to save us? Does it not say, Search ye the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life? Do we say, Because I study the scriptures, the scriptures are going to save me? Did the scriptures atone for me? Are the scriptures going to plead to the Father in my behalf? Are the scriptures, an inanimate object, going to be able to resurrect me from the dead? Is my temple attendance going to save me? Is going to church on the Sabbath going to save me? Is my fasting going to save me? And this is the same lesson I think we've harped on week after week as we've kind of been reading this. is we do these things, not because these things have any ability to save or grant us life, But because Christ does, and these things should bring us to Christ, Christ will grant us life. So where are the holy places? The holy places is being where Christ wants us to be, doing what Christ wants us to do. It is very much a living gospel, not a dead one. If we rely on dead works to save us, and, and we think that these are going to be okay and, and, and I can pay my way into heaven through all my good deeds, it's not going to work. So what saved the people was when they saw the signs coming and they heeded the words of Christ, warning them to not be there, and they fled. For them, the holy place may have been halfway around the world. Maybe they were in Europe when Jerusalem was destroyed and they were safe, because they listened to what Christ told them to do. That's what it means to me to be standing in holy places.
1: Uh, Let me pipe in. Please do. Did Jesus always hang out in the temple? Was he just in the temple the entire time he was out ministering? Yeah, absolutely not. Okay. I think that 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 alone probably answers that question for me. And to your point, I completely agree. And as as i agree with you that standing in a holy place is where christ wants us to be i also would like to add make where you are a holy place like like sanctify the places that you're at with your with the 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 example that you have of christ or doing things that christ would do in those circumstances i i love your example of well in the second coming you want to be hanging out at the temple i'm like I feel like you would probably have just as good of a chance of making it if you're out on the streets, helping the homeless. If you're, you know what I mean? If you're, if you're giving somebody a blessing, if you're, um, if you're working extra time so that you can afford to, to buy some groceries for your next door neighbor, like all of those places are holy places in my opinion, because of what you're doing in the place that you're at. Thank you, Nate. Oh yes. Yes. And Here's, here's, here's one last thing I want to hit
0: on this, and, and then I promise I'll move on, And unless you want anything else from here. He doesn't say stand in holy places. He says stand in the holy place, singular, which is kind of interesting because the temple had two rooms. You had the Holy of Holies, which is the throne of God, the Ark of the Covenant, and and that's the presence of God, and it's separated by a curtain, which by the way has cherubim patterns sewn into the curtain. So it's cherubims keeping the way from being able to enter in there. And then the other room is called the Holy Place. That's its name. And then you have the outside world. So as you're traveling to the temple, you make your way through these courtyards to the altar, And then you're allowed to enter into the holy place and then to the holy of holies. And if you have God in in the holy of holies on the throne and you have the world on the outside there, then the holy place is what bridges that gap between the two worlds and allows the two to come together. And the furniture in the holy place is the menorah. And the menorah was shaped as a tree, and it has these knobs and the branches. And it's the, this idea that the menorah embodied the tree of life. And the the fruit of the menorah, the fruit of this tree, is literally light, the flame that's burning on these candles. And as we've talked about before, and you'll see it in the book of Revelation, when John goes on his tour of the temple and he hears the Lord Christ calling him, he looks and what does he see? He sees a menorah. And in the midst thereof, he understands that that's an image or a symbol of Christ. And you look at Lehi's vision, when he sees the tree of life, and Nephi is so desirous to understand what this means, he asks the angel, and the angel, instead of showing him a tree, shows him the birth of Christ and says, now do you know what the tree is? And he says, yes, it's the love of God. For God so loved his, the world that he sent his son Right, His son is this tree, and the fruit of his son is the fruit of the atonement. It's the atonement. It's the saving power. It's life, everlasting life. And so when he says stand in the holy place, what is in the holy place? Well, that's symbolism there. That's Christ who stands in between God on one end in the holy of holies and the outside world on the other end. And does not Christ say, come follow me, be like me, if you're going to stand, stand in my shoes? So Nate, to your point, when you say you'd be just as safe if if you're helping somebody on the street or you're working to do something for somebody else, is that not standing in the holy place? Is that not being a savior for somebody else? and and i i feel like that's what christ is saying. and for anyone who interpreted this as, oh shoot, i better go and jump in the temple. what happened? the temple was destroyed. you would have been destroyed too. it's not it's not it's it, i don't know. it's 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 alive. it's living. it's christ. okay. all right, i think that's i think that about covered that part of it. let's go to the next section. um the parable of the ten virgins, and and I'm just looking through just to make sure there was nothing else. Oh, oh, okay, sorry. I wanted to I wanted to give everyone just kind of a a little advice on understanding Matthew 24, because we do have here a lot of different prophecies covering a lot of different time. And in one hand, you hear him saying. That, that these things are going to happen in this generation, and this generation shall not pass away until they see the fulfillment of this. But then he's also talking about the end of the world and the time when Christ is going to return to the earth a second time. And, and you look at it, and he, he's obviously not coming back to restore the gospel and the end of the world to wrap everything up within the single lifetime of, of these apostles within the next 40, 50, 60 years. So when we start looking at this, and and he's giving us all of these events that are going to happen, it might seem a little bit confusing. I wanted to give you just a little bit of a key to understand as you try to unravel this, and and I'll just let you kind of figure this out on your own in your own study. Go back to the question that the disciples asked to give you the correct context for Matthew 24. And this is verse 3. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us when these things shall be. Okay, that's the first question. What things? Christ had just barely finished telling them that not one stone shall remain on another on the buildings that are inside the temple lot. They're all going to be destroyed. They're asking him, when is the temple going to be destroyed? When is Jerusalem going to be destroyed? That's the first question. Next, and what shall be the sign of thy coming? So now we have a second question, what, what, what is the sign that you are going to be returning to the earth? And then last question, and of the end of the world. And so they've asked all of these questions and just kind of one, almost as if it's one question, when are these things going to happen? When's the end of the world and when are you coming back? And so Christ is answering this, but he's answering all three questions. Let me tell you to what, to, what to look out for here in Jerusalem in the immediate future. Let me tell you what to look out for as far as when the gospel is going to be restored and preached to all the earth and the second coming of Christ. Let me tell you what to look out for as far as the end of the world. And and so you have three different questions, and his answer is not very clear in distinguishing this is pertaining to this question, this is pertaining to this question, because a lot of the things that you're talking about concerning the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, are also going to be good imagery to help you understand the things that need to happen before the the, the Lord can return back to the earth and before the gospel is restored. So take that and, and use that as you read this chapter to help you understand that this is actually crossing a very broad timeline and, and that things are happening at different times in than in the answer that Christ gives. And, and he says, him that hears, let him understand. It's going to be understood by, by, by the Spirit. And I think we'll get into a little bit more detail about this as we, as we come later on in the year in the book of Revelation. We start talking about those. But for, for this episode, for this week, I don't I don't think we need to go there. So let's take it to the parable of the ten virgins. This is Matthew chapter 26. I'm sorry, 25. And then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom and five of them were wise and five were foolish they that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps and so so i think right off the bat when we're talking about the difference between the wise and the foolish the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. It sounds like it's not just that the lamp had oil in it. As I read that, it almost sounds like they took a separate vessel with them that had oil that they brought with their lamps, and their lamps were full of oil as well. And and so it's almost like they were a little extra prepared maybe. Keep going. While the bridegroom, let's see. Yeah, while the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And I think that's an important detail while the bridegroom tarried. Perhaps they were expecting this feast to start much earlier, but he takes his time in coming. And, and I think we need to understand why he's taking his time and what's happening. But they're waiting for him, and they thought they had enough oil. Whose fault is it that they're out of oil? An argument can be made here that because the bridegroom tarried and took so much longer to get there, that that's what caused these people to not have enough oil in their lamps keep going. At midnight, uh, let's see. And at midnight, there was a cry made, behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all the virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, give us of your oil for our lamps are gone out. So again, when they're saying that their lamps have gone out, they had oil in their lamps. They were burning, but because it was so late into the night, They've burned out of the sources that they had. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but go rather to, you to, to them that sell and buy yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterwards came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day, nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. And I think there's so much, there's so much here. I, I, and I feel like, you know, when Christ comes, I want to be prepared. But if he's not coming yet, maybe I can take a nap right now and wake up later and be prepared for when he gets here. I, you see that a little bit in this sense. Should we, Should we go... Should we go maybe into the tradition and why? What's the bridegroom doing? Let's let's talk about that a little bit. The idea is that the bridegroom and the father of the bride need to need to negotiate and and determine the price and the and the conditions and the contract because the groom is buying the bride in, in essence from the father, and they go and they and they reach their agreement. And, and when they have, now the groom has to go back to his house, his father's house, and he has to prepare a chamber for the bride in the which they're going to consummate their marriage. And while they're consummating the marriage, you're going to have the wedding feast where all of the guests are going to celebrate the wedding and the marriage. So the, the, the bridegroom has to go back to his father's house, and, and he has to prepare this room. And when he's done, he's not done until his father looks at it and says, it is enough. This, this room is sufficient. The chamber is, is prepared enough that I approve. And so he's preparing, if you will, a mansion in his father's house for, for the marriage to take place. And when he's done preparing the mansion for the bride, now he can go on his way back to the bride's house, to the father of the bride, and pick up the bride and bring her with him back to his house. Meanwhile, the guests that are invited have to wait for this process to, 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 to finish out. And I think with that context, we look at this, Christ came here on earth and, and Israel is his bride and he's going to prepare a place for us in, in his home above with God the Father, a mansion for, for Israel to live in. And while he's doing that, it takes time to prepare, and when he comes, are we going to be ready? And this reminds me of the scripture when Christ says, When I come, will there be faith on earth? And, and so I take this this oil, and I think oftentimes we like to associate the oil with testimony, right? But, but can the oil not also be faith? Yep. As we're waiting for Christ, and we're expecting him to come, and he doesn't come, and he doesn't come, and we're waiting for him to be there, and we think maybe he gave up on us or maybe this was just a myth, right? Maybe Christ isn't this living person but somebody that they worshiped in antiquity, right? This 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 guy that's dead just as the scriptures are dead. Will there be faith on earth when Christ comes back? Do we still believe when he makes us wait? And and think about some of the trials that we go through and we're praying and asking God to help deliver us from these trials and it just It just takes time. It just lags out. And we just wonder, is he even hearing us? Does he know we're there? Do we have enough oil to carry us through those hard times? Did, Did... Jacob have enough oil when he was wrestling with the Lord to be able to hold on and not let go to earn the name of Israel? Did Job have enough oil to be able to get through losing his family, losing all of his possessions, and losing everything else, and yet he still believed at the end of the day? So I, I find this, this parable, is, it's kind of powerful. It kind of resonates. And I think particularly now you see a trend or a fashion in the world that a lot of people are, are deciding to leave faith behind, that maybe our, our parents didn't know what they were talking about or, or maybe they just followed blindly and, and now we're more enlightened and, and that intelligence leads us away from God. When Christ comes, will there be faith on the earth? One thing that's a little bit chilling about this, Nate, and the, the imagery here, is the fact that all 10 of these were virgins. And virgins have been used a lot in the scripture to represent purity and faithful to the Lord. Whereas in the opposite is going to be the prostitute, right? This idea that you, if you have a woman who's sleeping with other men, it's cheating on God. In this case, it's not that five of these women were cheating on God, were prostitutes that didn't have the oil. It's the fact that all ten of them were virgins. And maybe we can take this in context of what we just read about standing in holy places. Are are some of the virgins, the ones who are faithful to Christ, the, the, the members of his church or Israel, faithful Israel, if you will, relying too heavily on their own good works or, or things other than Christ to where they're, they 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 tempted to lose that faith that they had in him. Okay. So that's that's the parable of the 10 virgins. And I and and you guys probably have uh, you've probably heard just as many interpretations and you've got uh, just as many good things there. I'm going to leave that one as is. Let's jump into the next one. Uh Nate, your favorite. Parable of the
1: talents. Oh baby. <laughs> oh, baby. Why do I have to be sick this week? <laughs> All right, let's do it. Well, and and what is a talent? A, and, and a talent is
0: a measurement. And, and it comes to find out a, a talent is about 70 to maybe 75 to maybe 100 pounds. And pounds of what? It doesn't say. In this story, it doesn't specify. It could be pounds of silver. It could be pounds of gold. And so when we're starting to look at the value of what the Lord is handing off to his servants, the one that gets one talent, it's very easy in my mind to think of one coin. coin yeah, yeah and you're just burying this little hole. You're, you're dumping this little coin in there. But the truth of the matter is, the scholars, the historians, they'll give this range anywhere from $30,000 to a million dollars was entrusted to, this, to the servant in which one talent was given. And then you think of... The one that had five, we're talking multimillionaire, and coming back and returning the ten. So, so we have
1: the parable of the talents. Nate, this is this is this is your. I don't want to. I don't want to dwell on this too much because I've done it so much. But I will just for all of our new listeners out there. Just put a quick bow on this. I'm putting a quick bow on this. This this parable has so much more to do with stewardship and responsibility, and and being um, good stewards over the things that the Lord has entrusted us with than sharing your talents like singing and playing guitar and baking cookies and all of those things. It's really nice to think of the word talent in that um, context. But as Jason just reiterated, once again, it's not. So let's all do a very good job of reading this parable with the idea that we're asked to be good stewards if this parable inspires you to go sing for the choir in church, awesome. I'm glad that's, I would, who would ever say that that's a bad thing, but to try to dismiss the importance of realizing that this is a measurement of wealth, money, stewardship, you're missing the point of this parable. That's all I have to say.
0: Okay. And I'm I'm just going to wrap this up, quoting Christ in two instances and how he wraps this up. To the one that was faithful and and doubled it from five to ten, and and to the one that doubled it from two to four, right? He says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of my Lord. And and I take that in context of two weeks ago, we were talking about the unjust servant. Who, who was not doing a good job, who his Lord called him and he's going to fire him. So he cooks the books or fixes them to try to make the Lord's debtors happy and gain favor because he knows he's headed to the outside world. And Christ sums that up by saying almost the opposite. He that is unfaithful in a few things will be unfaithful in great things. And so attention to detail a little bit, right? If, we, if we're willing to, to compromise on important things, what else are we willing to compromise on? And and if we're willing to be faithful in some of the small things, then he's going to also give us the opportunity to be faithful in great things. And then the last thing I wanted to hit on this is what he says to the one servant who 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 hid it in the earth, right? And it's not like he lost it. He was still able to return what he had. But he says in this verse 29, for unto everyone that hath shall be given. And he shall have abundance, but him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And that seems boy, doesn't that seem unfair to to, to the no. one that has <laughs> to the one that has a lot, I'm gonna give more.
1: No. No, it doesn't seem unfair to me at all. I feel like that steward proved exactly what he was gonna do with the um, the Things that he had been given um, stewardship over and accountability over. So no, actually, and in fact, I'm glad you asked that question because again, the idea that, the idea that in this life, it's unfair if we don't have the same things as somebody else, or do have the same things. One, it's not a judgment on necessarily if we're good or bad stewards over things, but when you when you take into account like. Yes, some people in this life will have more than you. They're still responsible for that. They're, they're responsible for what they do with that wealth, what they do with those responsibilities, what they do with that power, what they do with that leadership. In a lot of ways, I am totally okay that I'm not responsible for, you know what I mean? All of the things that come along with with some of those other things that we, we, we only see the good things, I think, right? We see these knuckleheads out on yachts and we're like, man, that must be the life. And so many of these times, these people are miserable. Okay, cool. They, maybe they were the millionaire. Maybe they were the millionaire given the one thing that that you know what I mean. That it's like not knowing exactly what to do with it. All I guess all I'm saying is is that we this isn't this isn't as cut and dry as is. A, a, it's fair to somebody and not fair to somebody else. God's gonna give us. I feel like an opportunity to magnify the things that we have stewardship over in this life. You said it. The scriptures say it. If we if we magnify those things in this life we'll be given everything whether we're given two whether we're given one whether we're given five be be a good steward prove that you are responsible enough to deal with the things that you are given responsibility over the reward jason you said it all things all things so. many things whatever i'm just saying it's like great this what a, what an amazing opportunity to to prove that we are responsible enough to be good stewards over things and thank goodness I'm not responsible for a lot of things that other people are responsible for, and the headache, and the heartache, and the time, and the sacrifice that it would take to maintain and be a steward over things that are really outside of my, you know, scope of what I would want to be doing.
0: Well, think about all the stress that guy was feeling with the one talent and losing that. I mean, multiply that again. If he gave him ten talents in response and said, "Okay, I'm going to make you be even more responsible."
1: What, what changes in that dude's heart? Like the thing is, is you're, you're, you're a good steward or you're not. I feel like, but I think you can learn it. But like in this story, it's like, what would have you're, you, you bring up a good point. What difference does 1 million or 10 million make? Like the dude's a knucklehead. That's okay. Cool. The bottom line, Christ, the master, whoever you want to put was merciful only given this person one. Yes. That's a, that's, that's him doing him a favor. That's because, a, It is. And he still is gonna complain about this. So it's like cool. Clearly the the you can see by again the way this conversation plays out where the problem lies. Well I
0: wonder I, I wonder if he's even complaining. I don't know that he is, right? I, I don't think he wanted the responsibility. I mean he's saying it. I went and hid this. I was worried. I was worried I was gonna disappoint you. I was worried I was going to lose it. I can't handle responsibility. That's his response. And the Lord in his mercy is removing responsibility from him. You can't handle it, then let me not put that responsibility on you.
1: There it is. I think I, that's that. That's all I have to say about that.
0: And 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 one thing, just maybe to to hit on is, it's not like the Lord is giving them all this sum of money and saying, "Here, this is your wage. Go and live on this and have fun." Right? These are his hired servants. Right? He's their responsibility is to turn a profit to him. This is their job. He's giving them, he's trusting them with some assets and resources to get a return on investment. That's the whole purpose for having them here, for hiring them. This is not just a gift that he gives and says, hell, tell me, what what are you going to do with this? No, this is their
1: job. And and this guy apparently wasn't ready for his job. But unfortunately, there are things in this world that, that force people to resent other people. And money is one of those things. Responsibility and money is one of those things. I, I, I don't think that it's fair to not at least use this parable as as evidence of how Christ feels about resenting wealth, resenting money, resenting responsibility. I I, I tend to agree with Jesus in this parable <laughs> where, cool, if the person is instead of excited to go out and— take what he's been given and use that and, and, and do something with it, but is instead looking at some, some, what everybody else has and saying, well, that's not fair. I'm like, okay, cool. Like I don't, I don't even remember who the quote was from, but it's some, some old, you know, economy professor, scientist, but it was like, cool. Some people aren't responsible enough for wealth to ever be able to have it. And I'm like, Oh, okay, cool. Like I actually believe that. I believe, that, I believe that there is a lot of responsibility that comes with it. If, if you resent somebody for something else that they have that you don't, it's hard for me not to think, oh cool, then maybe, maybe you're not in a place right now that you're responsible enough to be dealing with that. If, if instead of going, hey, I'm gonna take what I have and build, you instead look at somebody else and say, well, because I don't have what they do, I'm giving up. It's like, oh, you're being given an opportunity take the opportunity and this might sound harsh and whatever you know and again i'm i'm not trying to make it sound that way and i understand that there are a billion different circumstances right but even even in the worst of cases what an opportunity to take the little that we do have and try to find a way to magnify it that's that's the, that's the only point i'm making i'm not a rich person i'm not a wealthy person at all i'm i'm happy i'm living the dream i love my life Yes, there is a human nature sometimes when you see the, the dudes out on the yacht and you're like, "Well, that would be nice." But then I'm like, "I would just I don't even like going to the to the shipping store to like <laughs> ship things." Like, I don't like I don't like sending mail. I don't like having to dude, I don't like having to find a color printer. Like, you really expect me to want to find a place to dock a yacht, to take care <laughs> of these things? To, I mean, that's just a lot of responsibility that I don't want. Like I I can't say enough. I feel like to this point in my life, thank God he's given me kind of what I am able to, handle. able to handle and not too much more and not too much less. And and there's one last
0: word of advice here that I've learned from you, Nate, is the motivation behind decisions. If we are trusted with with this opportunity to try to improve upon... I think the, the, the driver for success behind the first two is that they were inspired by, by, by hope. By, by they, they, their motivation was,
1: I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how to say it. it it's positive. They're, they're, it wasn't fear. It wasn't fear. That's that's the point I that I would say that I think you're trying to say, and I totally yes agree with you.
0: Yes, because you've I mean you've you've told me this and, and talking about artists that are coming in and trying to sign a deal, and the reason why they rush into signing some deals
1: is because deals, they're afraid
0: usually. that it'll not come around yes. again. Because they haven't earned that chance, right? That's
1: a great words you just used, by the way. They deep down even inside of them know this is too good to be true and therefore make a decision out of fear, the fear of going something this good may never come up again. Yeah, I realize I'm having to give up quite a lot, and this probably isn't a very good thing, but I'm afraid that I'm really not not good enough to ever get something this good to happen to me again. The opposite of that is confidence and love and self-confidence and faith, right? Those are the opposites of those.
0: Yeah, so if we're going to be good stewards, and we've been trusted with a lot, we take a look at the families that we have, We take a look at where we're born in the world, the knowledge and and what the Lord has blessed us with, and it's very similar to at least a talent. If not five or ten or however many talents, we've been blessed. And if we're going to be good stewards of the talents that we have been given, then make decisions motivated by hope, by love, by inspiration and knowing that I am going to improve what has been given and I am excited about this opportunity. And it can be scary. Making that leap of faith can be terrifying. But that's very different from making a decision based out of fear. I don't know what else I'm going to do. I'm terrified that this is going to go wrong and, and I have to do this. And so we react rather than act. And, and I think that's a key to the success, what we see with these first two student, stewards as opposed to the last. That's that's all I got to say on that. Okay, uh, last two things, and, uh, and let's wrap this up. I, I wanted to say, in contrast with this story, it's very interesting that you get the story of the widow's might, And in this case, the one who is taking everything that she has and dropping it in a hole, so to speak, and that she's giving it away, is the one that's praised. Whereas in here you have the other ones that have excess, right? And they're giving in their abundance. And and it's a powerful story. I don't think I need to say too much on this. Christ Christ says that she gives a lot more because she's giving of her living, not of her of abundance, but all that she is. And and how do we in our lives give of our living? Instead of just of our abundance, when it's when it's convenient, when we have time. When it's okay, if we're waiting for that, maybe maybe some of us will never have any abundance. And there is no such thing <laughs> as time that we can give to serving the Lord. But when we carve out time of our living and how we live and in what we do, we're always trying to follow Christ and draw closer to him. Are we not also becoming like the widow's mite, sinking everything we have of our living into trying to dedicate and become like Christ and give to him and, and be like him? She's standing in the holy place. And and that takes us to the last one here. This is the sheep and the goats.
1: Sheep go to heaven. I'm playing a game drop, right? What do you do? You knew sheep I was. go to heaven. Goats It's got go to. to. Okay. They have Let's to. Do it have to. Let's do it. I'm
0: finding it right now. Do yeah. it up. All right. He he says that a shepherd is going to separate the sheep from the goats, and 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 then he's going to, relate that back to people and and judgment at the end and he says he's going to separate people and when he separates the people into these two categories similar to as a shepherd would separate the sheep and the goats he looks to the sheep and he tells them when i was hungry you fed me when i was alone you you visited me when i was in prison you visited me when i was naked you clothed me you took care of me in all of these instances and they're shocked. When did we do this? We never saw you. And he says, in as much as you have done this, and, and, and this is critical to the least of these, you have done it unto me. Not in as much as you've done it to your sick dad, who, who by the way, you should be loving anyways, or your friend who's down on his luck, who needs a little bit of help. Because are, are, are your family and friends really the least of society? Who's the least of society? And are there people in society that we turn our nose up or try to ignore because we find them disgusting or we're abhorred by the decisions that they make and we don't feel like they deserve our mercy or our charity? And he turns to the the other people who he's compared almost similar to the goats here, and he says, You didn't feed me when I was hungry. You didn't give me money when I was when I was poor, or visit me in prison, or any of these things. And and they say, when And inasmuch as you have not done it to the least of these, you have not done it unto me. And and I think it's a powerful story. I think we all understand this. But as I was reading this, it took me down, why do shepherds separate sheep and goats? What's what's the reason for that? And so I was looking, and, and I was doing a little bit of research on this, and there's a couple things here. First off, because they behave differently, right? Sheep, are very much herd mentality. They have to stick together. They feel comfort in being close to each other. It's very easy to pin in sheep because they all stick close to the flock. Goats are the opposite. They, they like to explore. They're very curious, and, and they wander off, and they don't necessarily like to be close to each other. Well, they're also violent. <laughs> they, they do tend to it's be like more violent. If you violent. turn
1: your back on a goat, you know he's coming to ram you. <laughs> I know this from personal experience. But, but you say ram, rams are also uh violent. He's coming to he's coming to headbutt you in the rear. <laughs> personal experience. Oh days. yeah, well, on my mission, Jack Aiello, good friend, at the time had goats. He's like, "Don't turn your back on that one." Oh boy. Made that mistake and the next thing I know I was getting plowed in the back of the thigh by this thing head on.
0: They do tend to be more aggressive than sheep. And and they, you know what? I I feel like a lot of the goats, if if you will, of society today, criticize the sheep. Like I I don't want to be a sheep. I
1: don't want to just follow blindly, wow. right? That was like, that's that was an amazing little zinger you just put in there. But yes, yeah, baby. <laughs> maybe
0: maybe I want to be a little bit more aggressive and violent, and not just follow. And maybe I need to be a little bit more curious, and and I'm I'm better off because of that. And and where is that ending up as far as the separation goes at the end? Maybe we should have spent more time caring about the other people in the flock. Jesus says, if you are not one, you are not mine. He does. He does. And and then I've figured out something else too. Part of the reason why they separate the sheep and the goats is because sheep are low grazers, right? They they just eat grass. Where the goats, on the other hand, they'll eat twigs branches anything they can find but they're typically reaching up a little bit higher so if you're taking them to different pastures you've you've, you've got to because the sheep are going to do much better in a low grazing atmosphere to be able to feed and enjoy and, and whatnot the goats on the other hand their diet's different and and you need to take them to a different pasture to be able to eat and be successful that way and and the goats diet they'll eat poisonous plants and and it won't bother them. They need more copper in their diet, so they, they need to mix a little bit more metals in what they're eating or take them to an area where they're gonna find more 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 copper to be able to supplement their diet. If you give sheep the same diet as a goat, the sheep will get sick. So you have to separate them in order to feed them differently. And so it, it almost seems merciful in what Christ is doing here in this instance too. You two have very different personalities. You've behaved very differently on on life. And because of your behavior and your differences, I can see that you need to be nourished in very different ways. Where this is going to be something, maybe you need to have some food that would otherwise be caustic and poisonous to my
1: sheep. But that's what you need. feels like the next life, kind of even just the separation of kingdoms is the same thing, where it's just like, cool, like you you need a different thing to be happy you need a different you know like we look at we look at sometimes anything other than like exaltation as hell okay fine but from what we understand there's still glories there's still degrees of glory there's still heavens in their own right and the separation that we kind of do on our own of where we go in the next life i think is exactly what you're saying which is some of us aren't going to be comfortable in the same place as other people
0: and maybe some of the food that the the, the goats get served maybe some of that poisonous food if you will or this food that would make sheep sick maybe some of that's a little bit of guilt maybe some of that's a little bit of medicine to help the goats become more like the sheep Maybe, maybe there's something there that helps them to become more like the sheep to where they can enjoy that pasture later on i don't know
1: that's a great point. Good stuff this week, Jason. Anything else you want to hit before we wrap this up? I think we wrap it up. I I think we're there. Amazing. Sorry that I'm sick and can't really help you out much here, buddy. No, you're you're good. And you know, we're, we're, we're a little bit of a time crunch this week. Um, I, I
0: feel like we've gone super long in the last couple. Let's just let's just keep this one tight. And... I think it's a
1: good idea. Thank you guys so much for listening, even when we're sick and sound like frogs. I apologize. <laughs> I, by we, I mean me. Um, we really appreciate the comments. We continue to get them every week, like, just so you know, we read them and we share them, you know, Jason, and I share them back and forth and it just makes us happy to know that people are listening and, and that we're able to do our little part to try to hopefully, um, make your study a little bit, you know, deeper to, to make your week, hopefully a little bit more, you know, fun and, and your, your, your study means something, but, um, we also do, in truth, just do this for us too, though. Like we love doing this, and, and Jason and I really are friends, and and enjoy, you know, kind of talking through and discovering a lot of this stuff together. So, anytime we get feedback from you with insights and and your ideas on things, we love that too because we're still just trying to figure this out ourselves as well.
0: It just feels like we're all friends. I mean, right? We're just getting together talking about the gospel,
1: which is great. And, and I think it edifies. I know it edifies us, and hopefully, you feel the same, um, those of you listening. But if you would like to get a hold of us. The email address is hi at weeklydeepdive.com. We appreciate you listening until next week. See ya.